Hi everybody, my guest today is Tony Platt. Tony is a producer, engineer, mixer whose career started way back in the 60s and since then has gone on to produce or engineer uh, some really famous albums over the years, ACDC, Bob Marley, Iron Maiden, uh, you name it, he's been there and done it. Uh, he's got quite a story to tell. He's also left-handed and I first met Tony about five or six years ago when we worked together on the Marshall UAD plugins with Softube. Here's what he had to say. If there's anything I talk about you don't want to talk about, we'll just move on. I'll edit out. I'll afterwards. tell you. Yeah, absolutely. I know you will. <laughs> right, here we go. Okay. <clears throat> Hi, Tony. Well, hello. How are you? I'm fine. And I want to say thank you for being here. I feel very honoured to have you. And um, and you're a lefty as well, aren't you? I am. I am. I'm, a, you know, left-handed producers and engineers unite exactly it's the best best way to be this is the place for them to come um we've got a lot to talk about and you know if we were to talk about everything this interview would probably run at about five hours so we're going to briskly move back to the early years of tony platt um there's you know you always hear these stories of people um you know they started out as a as a runner or they started out as a t-boy but that literally happened to you didn't it that was like the how your career started out Absolutely. I, I started as a T-boy at Trident. I'd, I'd written to lots of studios and not got any answers, and I'd pretty much given up. And then, you know, the usual thing, the London bus technique. Um, I got two answers, one from Delane Lee and one from Trident Studios, and uh, set the, got the interviews on the same day, went down to London and got offered both jobs. So <laughs> then I had to choose which one to take. But it was a bit of a no-brainer, really, because the people at Trident were much, much pleasanter people and much more kind of music-orientated. I felt the people at uh, Delane Lee were just a bit kind of up themselves, you know. So, um, and oddly enough, um, the guy that gave me my first job was a guy called Malcolm Toft. And um, I was only talking to him a couple of days ago, actually, and uh, we were reminiscing about the days of Trident because uh, there are somebody's about to do a film all about Trident and oh, the really? uh, early days of Trident. Yeah, amazing. So, what year would this have been, roughly? This was sort of around the sixty-eight, sixty-nine. Okay, and what was your what was your first sort of job when you were doing it? Like you say, you were the T boy, but how did it progress into something more at Trident? Um, well, the really the first opportunity I got to do something a bit more technical was um, we got uh, in those days, it was four track and eight track. That was the maximum track count on the tape recorders, the multi tracks that we were using. And people were still using um, uh, two track and four track and bouncing between two machines. And then one of the first 16 track machines, it was a 3M M56 machine, um, came to Trident. It was probably, it was certainly the first one in the UK, whether it was the first one in the world, I'm not absolutely sure. It was a bit of a beast of a machine, <clears throat> but Trident's, um, all the tape machines at Trident were in a central machine room on the first floor of the building. And the studio, oh, the control room was on the ground floor and the studio was in the basement. And then also on the first floor, there was a mix room. And you could patch basically any machine into any of those rooms. Now, the trouble with the M56 was that nobody built a remote control for it. Um, or at least if they had, there was only one of them, and that, that went down into the studio. And so the first sort of technical thing I got asked to do was to sit next to this M56 machine in the machine room whilst Roy Thomas Baker um, had the, uh, the talkback wired open in the mix room and was shouting, play, stop, roll it back, and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, I mean, talk about a baptism of fire. I was terrified of making a mistake. And then he started, they, they decided to do some overdubs. So he said, all right, I'm going to count you down three, two, one now. And I want you to drop in to record when I shout that. So, I, you know, that terrified me even more, especially... <laughs> Because there's all the, the noise of the music coming, you sure. know, compressed like hell down the uh, the talkback microphone. And then um, especially because a couple of times he went three, two, one, no. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately, I was able to differentiate between now and no and didn't actually make the, the cardinal sin of dropping into record. Because, of course... 
tape machine. It's a tape machine. It's not like Pro Tools. You drop no. in and you can go, all right, undo that. It's it's destructive record. Of course. And you were there really in the very early days of when it you really it was still such an art form and you really had to work at it to do to get anything done like like you say everything today that anyone who uses a any type of home recording stuff and they know they can just to punch something in simple you know but everything that you've just said just goes to show how difficult it was um what were the what were the type of people that were coming into trident in those days and recording there Oh, well, during that period, there was El Elton John was finishing off the Elton John album. Um, David Bowie was doing changes and memory of a free festival, those sort of things. Then we had Dr. John came in, uh, Mark Bolan with Tyrannosaurus Rex. He was a regular visitor in there. There were people like Sean Phillips, um, who's an American singer songwriter. Genesis were doing the Trespass album when I was there. Um, you know, it's quite the, well. The Beatles were also putting the finishing touches to let it be at that point in time. Some of which got filmed in in Trident Studios as well. So there was a there was sort of a constant flow of of that kind of, those those artists. But of course, the thing is that they were still they were still on their way up anyway. They they, they had not become super mega stars at that point in time. Sure, but what a time to be alive, eh? And see it all firsthand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was very special, you know, and. And I think, I mean, one of the one of the overriding um, memories that I have of that is getting this job, being really excited. I got the job, and then from the first day onwards, just feeling like, uh, well, this is where I'm supposed to be. You know, there yeah. was a the definite feeling of belonging, and 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 that there was a, a connection between me and and what was going on. And was it something you always wanted to do? Was it something that you, you always wanted to sort of, did you always know you wanted to be in production and engineering in some way, shape or form? Well, to be perfectly honest, I didn't really know what that was. You know, all I, I sort of fiddled around at school. Um, a friend of mine um, at school and myself, we, we ran a radio, we started up a radio station um, using... Uh, this this wired system that went around. I mean, very, very basic system that went around the whole school. And we did a radio show a couple of times a week that was broadcast in the lunch hour. Um, and I had a trip to the BBC and saw, you know, the inside of a studio there and people working with tape machines. And I, uh, that was certainly a, a moment when I went, oh, now this is something I fancy doing. Right. Um, but I didn't really know exactly what, what it was all about. Um, producers were not so prevalent in those days. You've got engineers and you've got A&R people, um, and quite often A&R people would also be producers or the producer would be a mate of the band or yeah. something like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't a, a very clear career path at that point in time. So it was, it was kind of piecing it all together, really, as time went on. I think at that time, though, you also had, it was almost the the dawn of the producers, don't you think? Not only yourself, obviously, but uh, George Martin and guys like that were quite influential around that time into actually perhaps raising awareness of producers were what the, the part that they were playing in making some of these albums. Well, I think the, the, the notable thing is that um, we were starting to break out from what you might call a, an establishment um uh what's the word for it an establishment clique if you like you know yeah. up until that point you've got emi with abbey road studios you had decca with decca studios and and uh polygram or phonogram with phonogram studios so the there was this this thing that it was uh you know it was it was a bit like the bbc for music you know and sure. um <clears throat> Trident Studios and the next studio that I went to after that, Island Studios, were were significant in the respect that they were amongst the first independent studios. I mean, Island was tied to a record label, but it was a small independent record label, and Trident was a small independent studio. And it was notable that most of the um, the top 
stars or the upcoming stars at that point in time like to get away from their record company's gaze and go to an independent studio where they could just get creative. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one of the side results of that, of course, was that you then started having freelance engineers. Um, you know, my, one of my mentors, um, Glyn Johns, was one of the first of those freelance engineers. Um, his brother Andy as well, and and sure. and then that led into. I mean, you you mentioned George Martin, and what happened with George Martin, of course, is that he turned his back on EMI as well to a certain yeah. extent and went off um, as a freelance producer and uh, an engineer. So tell me about the move to Island Records and sorry Island Studio and how that happened. And is is that when you when you met Glyn Johns and guys like that? Yeah, that's that's um, that's when it opened out quite a lot. I mean, it was a it was a strange set of circumstances. You know, you sort of look back on it and think, well, obviously that was also a, a circumstance that was meant to be. Um, I'd noticed I was in the machine room at Trident and I noticed uh, an advert in the back of the Melody Maker. Most people won't remember the Melody Maker. It was like the NME, but better. I remember. And um, <clears throat> um, the, the, and it was an advertisement for a, uh, an experienced tape operator wanted for West London Studio. And, um, and I, the guy that I was in the machine room with, uh, a guy called Pete Booth, one of the technicians, he said, well, phone up and find out who it is. Um, and I phoned up and the security guy answered the other end and said, oh, Island, Island Studios. And I thought, oh, that's pretty good, because most of my record company were Island Records, you see. Uh, not record company, record collection were, were mostly Island Records. And, um, and, of course, I couldn't do anything about it there and then because it was after hours, and, in fact, it was the Friday before the weekend. Um, and I said to Pete, you know, wow, there's no point in me going for that because I'm not an experienced tape operator. And he said, yeah, but they don't know that. And... Um, <laughs> encouraged me to phone up, um, you know, the next week. And, and I did and got an interview, um, took a day off from Trident ostensibly to go to the dentist, went down to Basing Street in Notting Hill and got offered the job. Um, so that was a sort of, you know, an, an immediate move forwards um, yeah, and an I, immediate increase in pay. I went from £8 a week to £21 a week. Wow. That's a hell of an uh, increase in pay. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. glory days. Yeah. Wow. Incredible. Now, when I first met you, um, <clears throat> amongst many of the, the great chats we've had, you told me, and it, I'm hoping it was around this time, that one of your first sort of jobs – uh, at Ireland was doing something on because I, I remember telling you what a huge fan I am of the Eagles and you told me that one of your first jobs there was doing something on Witchy Woman uh, can you can you retell that story well it wasn't doing something on Witchy Woman the, Glyn Johns who as I said was one of my mentors um, he, he was he, he used to have favorite um, assistants at different studios okay. and I just happened to be in the elevated position of being his his favorite person so uh, I got to work on sessions with him um, a variety of different things like Rita Coolidge and Barbara Streisand and stuff like that and he just mixed the Eagles album with Witchy Woman okay and um, he finished mixing it and whilst we were doing I can't remember I think we were doing Rita Coolidge's album mixing that um, and he got sent a test pressing of the Eagles album to check it out and and um, sign it off and say, yeah, that's fine. Um, so we, we got the record player out, listened through to it, checked it on the big monitors in the control room and everything. Um, and then he put it back in the sleeve and he went, oh, here, do you want that? So I said, oh, yeah, that's great. It's a good, cool album. I, I'd like to listen to it again, took it home, and I've still got it. It's still oh. um, lurking out there in my office somewhere. That's amazing. Um, what about the other artists? You obviously mentioned quite a few of them there, but um, at Ireland, what other artists did you start working with uh, around that time? Well, there were there were some of the islands, uh, island records own artists, people like Free, John Martin, uh, Mott the Hoople, uh, Quintessence. Um, Free split up around that point in time and made up several other bands. There was yeah. 
Peace and uh, Kosov, Kirk, Tetzel and Rabbit and yep. Toby. Um, so I got to work with quite a few of those. And then, of course, we also, we, we had a sister studio. I mean, I say sister studio. It was more competition, actually. The a studio called Olympic Studios, which is a similar size and had very similar equipment in it. And a lot of the artists that like to work in Olympic also like to work at Island. Um, and um, so we, we, some of those artists were the, the Stones, the Who, Led Zeppelin, uh, and so on. They, so they would sort of bounce backwards and forwards between the two studios, depending on who'd got free studio time. So as an assistant engineer, I got to assist on various sessions. Um, I mean, I was an assistant on the session when they recorded um, um, Zeppelin... Well, Stairway to Heaven, anyway. Which one's that on? Zeppelin Four, yeah, yes. So, so I was, yeah, I was on the session with Stairway to Heaven. Managed to managed to erase one of the edit pieces for the intro, actually, which was not a particularly auspicious thing to do. <clears throat> wow! But you were there to witness it. All these oh, absolutely monumental. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's more to come as we move on, but already quite monumental uh, recordings. So how did, um, what were your next steps after that? I'm trying, what I'm trying to do is bridge the gap to when you started doing stuff with uh, Bob Marley and that sort of thing. Uh, well, I, Island, Island Records was quite a unique record company. You know, they had lots of different genres on the, on the label, running right the way from reggae through to, uh, to the rock um, rock bands and then Quintessence, which was a sort of Indian-inspired rock band. And um, I, I even did one album that consisted entirely of Tibetan bells whilst I was there. And um, and then all the way through to John Martin and Nick Drake, of course. You know, Nick Drake sure. was another one of the artists on the label. And we, we tended to get to work with quite an assortment of those different artists. I ended up doing quite a bit of work on reggae music, actually. Um, and it, what happened was that Chris Blackwell had devised this idea that he wanted to, um, he wanted to get reggae music, which was at that point in time was largely either very, very dark rootsy music, which was a bit inaccessible for, um, for certain audiences, or it was very, very kind of poppy and, um, you know, poppy boppy st stuff, lovers rock and things like that. Yeah. Um, and what he wanted to do, he wanted to get the, um, uh, the American college audience, the college radio, you know, because rock music was really big on college radio at that time. And that was what was really sort of, um, chasing the recognition that was or pushing the recognition for a lot of artists. And he felt that that would be good for reggae in general. So he came up with this idea of incorporating some rock musicians um, into the reggae um, and giving it a little bit of a different slant. So we had Wayne Perkins from uh, Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, um, Rabbit, who was a Texan uh, keyboard player, um, and a variety of other people that came in and, and played on the record. And he, and as far as I can gather, Chris asked for me to do the sessions because I'd been doing rock sessions and I'd been doing reggae sessions. Sure. So I guess he, um, he thought that I would be quite useful to bring these two genres together because there was an element of um, experimentation and, and, and also you had to get kind of creative with it, you know. Oh, incredible. Um, so uh, moving on from there, uh, what was your tie to and how did you meet Mutt Lang? Um, well, I, I'd left Island Studios and I'd been uh, around and about um, I'd run a studio. There was a studio that I'd recorded a couple of albums in um, down, down on the South Coast. It, it was called Saturn Studios, and it got bought up by somebody who became a very close friend of mine, is still to this day my, my oldest and dearest friend, uh, Adam Seif. And he bought the studio um, 
in combination with the studio manager that had previously been at the Saturn Studios. And then they asked me to be the chief engineer there. So I'd done a little bit of that. Um, then I'd left that studio for a couple of reasons um, that I won't go into. And I ended up then running a studio out in Italy for a, a year. Um, and I'd come back to the UK and um, was sort of trying to rebuild my freelance career, as it were. Because if you go in those days, if you went out to somewhere like Italy, you know, you kind of all of a sudden you, you weren't a face around town, as it were. So I'd kind of got get myself going again. And I'd started at that time. Um, there were projects that engineers and would-be producers were doing where you were starting to work directly with the artist from an earlier stage than just the recording stage. And I was doing some stuff with a guy called Gary Holton. I don't know if you remember Gary Holton. He he was Wayne in Aus Wiedersehen Pet. Okay. I know who you yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but he was also the lead singer in the Heavy Metal Kids. Of course. And um, he and a friend, another friend of mine were doing some recording um, uh, on that, uh, on just getting some of his demos together, really. Um, and then um, I got a call from Adam, who had that studio, who said, oh, there's, um, there's a friend of mine who's asked, he wants somebody to mix an album, um, and he wants somebody who can get that kind of real warm, fat English rock sound. Um, and uh, and I've, I've recommended you for it, so you'll be getting a phone call, you see. Okay. Um, so I, I said, well, who are they? And he said, oh, it's ACDC. Yeah. And I said, well, that's kind of strange because this, um, this guy that I'd just been working with um, had mentioned um, a, what he called an Australian punk band. <laughs> he said they're really really good this australian punk band so i'd kind of gone oh really so they want a rock sound uh, um and obviously got to listen to a couple of things before i went along um to talk about it um, and that's really how it came about um i spoke to mutt and he said well come down to the studio so i went down to roundhouse studios one evening and met everybody down there and he you know told me what he wanted to do um, and I booked Basing Street Studios um, just on the basis that I knew that the console, the Helios console in there, would give us the right, uh, the right sort of sound. Um, and that's where we mixed it in about eight or nine days. If anybody is wondering, if, any, if there is any doubt from anyone watching or listening, the album in question is, of course, ACDC's Highway to Hell. Um, that's which the would one. Be the first of. Um, more than one album that you'd work on with Mutt Lang and ACDC. And of course, the next one was uh, quite a pivotal album and one that has stood the test of time and is, and is uh, classed as one of the best rock albums ever released, which was Back in Black, which you had more involvement with. It wasn't just mixing it, was it? Oh, no, I recorded it, did all the recording, right. overdubbing and, and mixing on that, on that album and recorded The Bell, of course. Yeah. Hey, tell me about the bell. What was the bell? Well, they, they, they had the idea to have the bell on, on uh, one of the songs, you see, sure. and, um, and they'd already started the process of having a bell cast so they could take it on tour. With, on tour, yeah. You know? So this, this was the whole basis of the idea. Um, and so that was cast by a foundry in Loughborough. And um, I've forgotten the name of them now, but um, very famous Victorian bell foundry in sure. Loughborough. Um, <clears throat> so we got to this thing of, well, we need to record the bell. You know, we don't want to just use a sound effect. We'd like it to be a proper bell and properly recorded. And, and in any case, most of the sound effects that we'd found, um, the bells weren't perfectly in tune and they, they sounded a bit weedy. So I was sent from the Bahamas back to the UK to record the bell. And I took the Rolling Stones mobile up oh, to really? Loughborough. Now, the thing was that at, 
when you make a bell, when you cast a bell, it has to stay in a sand pit for a long time and cool down very, very slowly. Because okay. if you whip it out, it'll crack really sure. easily. Um, so this was still in the sand pit. And the guy that made it said, I think it's still a bit too warm to take out, but I'll find another bell similar size or same size and same key um, for you to hit and, and record. So they set it up for us to record this bell in a, in a church fairly near Loughborough. And we turn up with the Rolling Stones mobile, run a load of microphones up the bell tower, hit the bell. Now, the thing that we hadn't taken into consideration is that the other thing that inhabits bell towers, apart from bells, are pigeons and other birds. So you hit the bell and all the pigeons flutter off and you don't hear much of the bell, but you hear a lot of fluttering going on, you know. <clears throat> and by the time the bell has stopped swinging so you can hit it again, they've all come back. Sure. Um, so we're on a hiding to nothing with this, basically. So we, we kind of aborted that particular attempt. And I got back on to the guy at the, uh, the foundry and said, look, we it's not going to work doing that. When's the bell coming out of the pit? What, what can we do? So he said, All right, well, I think maybe it's cool enough now. I'll take it out very, very carefully and see whether or not it's the tuning is good. Because the way you tune a bell is you get it, you, you know, a, a bell foundry person. I don't know what a bell maker is, actually. Mm. Um, he, uh, what they do is they cast it and they work out the... Um, uh, the dimensions of the bell, and they work out the, comp the, uh, uh, the component of the, the metal that it's made from and all that to get the particular tuning. And, um, but generally speaking, they don't ever get it perfectly on. They have these massive tuning forks. I mean, the, the bell foundry had these tuning forks that were like 20 foot long, massive wow. things. Um, now they do it electronically, of course. Um, but anyway, uh, to, to get it in tune, what you do is you ream metal from the inside of the bell very, very slowly until it comes into tune. Um, and actually, this bell was almost perfectly in tune when it came out of the sandpit. So, uh, so they, they hung it up in the foundry and... Um, I needed to get another mobile studio up there. So I actually got Ronnie Lane's mobile studio, wow. which was being run by a friend of mine, which was built in an Airstream caravan. You know, sure. those bullet shaped caravans. Yeah. I've, I've, I've seen about, but <clears throat> weren't they the only, the two only mobile recording studios was the Stones and Ronnie Lane's, wasn't it? You had both of them, didn't um, you? Yeah, I think, I think those were the main ones. I think Basing Street might have had a, a mobile by then, but. Wow. Um, um oh rack also rack had one oh, okay but but of course you know I, I there was a budget at stake here so i needed to kind of pull a couple of favors anyway so this yeah. friend of mine you know did it as a favor more than anything else um so i've got these photos of this old victorian bell foundry with this bell hanging in the middle of it with hell's bell written on it you know um and then this bullet shaped um strange sci-fi type caravan um alongside it and the guy that made the bell played the bell he actually hit the bell and the sound oh, that's cool that took, um were, were him playing it wow um aside from the bell which is obviously a story in you know unto itself what was the rest of the album because obviously you were recording it in the bahamas wasn't it the yeah. Bahamas, yeah. How how was it? And you know, having to get over there to record it, was it easier than doing it in the UK? How did it all work? It went pretty smoothly, actually. I mean, the, I think the main thing, you know, people have lots of different questions about how everybody felt at that time. Uh, the fact that Angus and Malcolm had decided, you know, well, we're just going to we're going to go ahead. That's what Bond would have wanted us to do. Yeah. Um, there was a there was a sense of determination. There's also a, a great sense of camaraderie. I mean, it, you know, I wouldn't wish the circumstances, but the circumstances definitely led to a closeness. Between all of the people, the road crew, the band, and and all the the studio staff, and and the, us, the production staff, mm. so there was a real closeness about you know getting this as good as we possibly could get it. Yeah. Um, that that came from the circumstances that we found ourselves in. 
Yeah. Um, so it, it actually wasn't a difficult album to make in a lot of respects. Um, plus the fact that um, Brian had come into the band and, and, you know, had this mammoth task of, of filling Bond's shoes, but, but also doing something with it. You know, you, I don't think that album would have been well received if we tried to make something that sounded like Bon and the ACDC that went before. It had to be fresh and it had to be um, new in a lot of respects in, in order for it to work properly. So, um, you know, supporting Brian was the other thing that was really important because, you know, he, he had this mammoth mountain to climb with the, the vocals and... Mm. We needed to make him feel like he absolutely could do it, which of course yeah, he could. Absolutely. Were you surprised? And does it st- does it still surprise you today the the popularity of that album? No, no. I think I think what it what it absolutely shows is that when you have an album that is that honest and that heartfelt, and you know every single one of those songs um, is full on. You know, it's this. I don't think I've ever come across anybody who said, you know, oh, the yeah, there was the one track that I wasn't really into. You know, everybody yeah, sure. likes every track from yeah from a particular perspective. So yeah, it's a classic album, you know. absolutely. <clears throat> so that wasn't enough for you, really, was it? Doing, uh, you know, as this that many albums that became so popular already. You then went on to do uh, Foreigner Four was another album that you did. Yeah, well, that was uh, by then I'd become Mutt's engineer. So sure. um, you were his right hand man at that point, were you not? Yeah, no, I guess so. But I was his <laughs> left hand man, possibly. Well, if you're, of course, because yeah, <laughs> we should get it right. <laughs> uh, uh, so g- give us a, a a bit of an overview over some of those other albums that you did, including Foreigner Four uh, with him, and uh, the Buddy Guy albums that you did. Was that on your own, or was that with him as well? No, that was sometimes the 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 albums I did with Mutt were. Um, um, was the mixing of Highway to Hell, Back in Black, Foreigner 4, uh, the Boomtown Rats, Fine Art of Surfacing. Okay. Um, and uh, another album by a, a, a little-known songwriter called Dickon, um, yep. which we did in between a couple of other albums. And, and then uh, after um, the Foreigner album, no, after the Boomtown Rats album, I was asked by... Um, Mutt's management if they if uh, I would like them to manage me and and start getting production gigs for me great um, so that's that's when things moved to the next gear because um, Zomba were pretty much the most prominent product producer manager uh, company in in the world I would have thought at sure. that point in time and they were just in the process of building up Jive Records and everything that went with that and the artists like Billy Ocean and so on so uh, you know they were very much the center of the musical universe um you know turn, turning into quite a big um yeah big deal and so off, uh, off so that's that, that sorry. sorry I was going to say off off the back of that that's how you then became a producer in your own right and you started producing albums uh you know buddy guy iron maiden uh did you do some <clears throat> some stuff with motorhead and yep. you know that was you know so many crocus there was crocus um who else i'm trying to think of <laughs> yeah i mean there was the uh y y and t i'd mixed mm. an album for them um, lots and lots of stuff, you know, moving around and, and a lot of traveling around the world, which was a lot of fun too. Yeah. I mean, the Buddy Guy album was, um, I, I worked with, um, a friend of mine from the Island days, a guy called John Porter, who was the original bass player in Roxy music. Mm. And, um, we'd ended up, uh, doing an album together with a band called The Alarm. Um, and then after that, we, we also co-produced a band called Light a Big Fire, an Irish band, Light a Big Fire for, for Virgin Records. Um, probably one of the best albums I've ever made, but it never came out because the band managed to sack the singer two days before it was supposed to be released. <laughs> so the, the, the label shelved the album with a source of great annoyance to me still to this day. Um, and then, um, John had also, he played um, in Clapton's band and 
he was a big fan of Buddy Guy, as indeed was I. Mm. And he said to me one day, do you know Buddy Guy doesn't have a record deal? And both of us sort of sat there going, no, nah, that's ridiculous. That's impossible, surely. And it just so happened that um, Andrew Lauder, who's very well known across the music industry as being one of the good guys, had just set up um, Silvertone Records. Okay. Um, and which was under the auspices of Zomba. And so John went and saw Andrew and said, Andrew, do you know that Buddy Guy doesn't have a deal? And Andrew was virtually kind of, really? Well, he does now. <laughs> and so he went off and made a deal with Buddy uh, for an album and then did one of the most superb A&R um, jobs that I've come across in all my years working in, in music, um, of putting together this band of people um, and, you know, during the course of the making the record, we also managed to get a couple of guests on there like Jeff Beck and Mark Knopfler, Eric Clapton mm -hmm. and so on. Um, and so we made the damn right. I got the blues album, um, in, in the battery studios in Wilston. Amazing. Amazing. An album, um, which would go on to win a Grammy. Yeah. Best contemporary blues album. Yeah. Amazing. Absolutely. I still to get my certificate for that as well. Yeah. Tap them up. Um, yeah. What's your approach when you, when you, when you're producing an album, do you ever go in, um, with something in mind or do you, do you just let it play out and, and it's a very organic process? Um, no, I tend to be a bit more controlled than that. Actually. Well, my, my, uh, modus operandi, that's grandiose term for it. What I tend to do is I, I like to have a lot of discussions with the artist beforehand. I like to go and see them live. Not actually quite often, not just to listen to the band playing in their kind of natural habitat, but also to see what it is about the band the audience is like. You know, sure. sometimes there might be a song that you don't mm -hmm. like yourself, but audiences really like it. And, and if you watch what their reaction is, you can maybe work out you know what it is about the song that they like that you hadn't previously seen so i like to do all of that um i also like to spend time with them because i think for me the process of making an album isn't a lot of separate components you know it's it's starts when you pre-produce the songs and if you get that right, the recording goes much easier. And if you get the recording right, the mixing goes much easier. If you get the mixing right, the mastering goes much easier. So everything contributes to the next phase along the way. Um, and th this really requires a conversation to decide, well, what album do you want to make to the artist? You know, what, what, what do you think this should be, this album? Mm. Um, and obviously, you've got to take into consideration if there are other people like record labels and management that want to have their say too. Of course. Um, inevitably, there'll be lots of people with opinions. But it's, it's about that relationship between you, you as the producer and, and engineer and the artist and, and where the artist wants to go. So for me, the ultimate um, has been on a, a few albums. I mean, one particularly notable one was uh, Dennis Baptiste's album, um, amazing saxophone player. Um, and uh, he made this album that was all based around the, um, the freedom speech, you know. And he, um, when we'd finished making the album and, and cut it all together and played it back, um, and listened to it in the studio. We were, we wandered out into the car park from the studio afterwards, and he just came up. And he said, "Thank you very much. That's exactly the album I had in my head when I when I wrote it." And, and that's really what your ultimate goal is: is, is to do that. And you, can't, I don't think you can do that just by wandering through. You know, you've actually got to have that in your head before you start. I think the other thing as well about getting organised. Um, is I like to get as much organized as I possibly can because then I can put it to one side and just get and be creative. Yeah. What I don't like is if I've got still got organization to do when I'm in the studio and I want to actually be enjoying the experience of being in the studio, mm. it becomes very, very distracting if you've got business and, and organizational stuff still to do. 
was there um and you you don't have to answer this question but was there a an album that you worked on that uh this question is kind of twofold was there an album that you worked on that just it was all just a bit of a pain in the ass and didn't quite come together as easy as it should have done and also was there an album that at the time you perhaps thought this is going to be amazing but it was essentially underperformed and was underrated um well yeah the one that i shouldn't ever have done um and was absolutely horrendous was celtic frost okay um and it was, yeah, for a whole host of different reasons. Funnily enough, it's kind of popped up into um, into discussion at the moment. I did an interview the other day about about the Celtic Frost album, uh, but that was just, yeah, didn't really didn't really catch. But I don't think it necessarily was ever going to. It was the record label Noise Records in Berlin wanted to kind of um, they wanted to take a, a dark metal band before dark metal was even the term sure um and turn it into a glam rock band um and unbeknownst to me the band weren't or the leader of the band wasn't totally into that so um there was all sorts of confrontation that went yeah i can imagine and an album that i i felt should have done better and interestingly well there's two really that and both of them have done better in for in in sort of later times i think there's motorhead album another perfect day oh yeah um came in for a bit of stick when it first came out but actually um it continues to sell really really well um and it's uh you know a lot of people have come to like it and and it gets much better reviews now um and also the um the ronnie dio album that i did i thought you know, deserved better. Again, it, it sells pretty well around the, the world, um, uh, but it, it didn't really gain the recognition that I was expecting it to. Mm. And that's the thing, isn't it? It's never, it's of course never down to the producer. It's as it's for all the mention, all the reasons that you've just mentioned about it can be band personnel, it could be management getting involved, it can be record labels getting involved and all of that stuff. All you're trying to do is just make a good record at the end of the day. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of the time it, it's, it is stuff that's beyond your control. I mean, I, I remember getting a bit despondent at one point and my manager saying to me, you know, the thing is, Tony, you, you will always make great albums, you know, so don't let people run away with the idea that you're, you're going out there and making a shit album. You, you don't do that. The thing is that you have to have a lot of circumstances which are beyond your control all fall into place, you know. So you take Back in Black, that was a set of circumstances that all fell into place in a very positive way. Yeah. Um, and so it became absolutely massive. But uh, another album, you know, I did an album with a band called Shy um, and they were on RCA Records and it was a good album and it came out. And the marketing department of the record company, for reasons only known to themselves, um, broke a couple of the chart company's rules by giving um, two incentives, um, purchase incentives for the, the initial launch and, and release of the, of the record. And you weren't allowed to do that. So mm. the album was due to debut on the chart at number 28, which would have been high enough up to have given it that thrust of, um, of sales. Mm. And instead of that, it didn't appear on the chart for four or five weeks after it had been released, by which time the band had already started their tour so, you know, when you're in those days, when you were touring, you, you needed the record to be out because you do a gig. Of course. People like it. They go and buy the record. Yeah. So the record just kind of never made it beyond the, the top 50 from that point on. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, and that's completely beyond anybody's control. It was somebody not doing their job properly. You know, it's the old, yeah. you had one job to do and yeah. you screwed it up. And, but essentially, and everybody. yeah, yeah, screws everyone and essentially ends up wasting a lot of time and money for a product that could have been used in, in a much better way, couldn't it? You know, yeah, yeah. real, real shame. Um, we need to move on. Uh, <clears throat> the, the last section I want to talk about is obviously you... Um, 
no more do you have to deal with tape machines and all the all the stories you were telling me about earlier and you very much embrace new technology and recording equipment which uh leads us on to how we both met because we were about five or six years ago we were both involved with the uh uad marshall official marshall amplification plugins weren't we yeah and it was fun it was i don't know what you remember about it but i remember it just being an incredibly easy thing to put together in that soft tube were involved they said we'd really like to do such and such a amps i think they were looking at originally they wanted to do some signature amps that had come out and i said you know look there's the museum uh, i you know so I, I i knew a lot of those amps in the museum well enough and there was an original blues breaker and an original plexi and stuff like that and before we knew it, I remember we were in studios in London and we were doing it and recording them. And it was just, it was one of the most pleasurable experience I've ever had. And the turnaround was something ridiculous. Like they were out in like like six months later or something like that. It was yeah. so much fun. Yeah. What, what do you remember about it? Well, I think initially I wasn't too sure about it because, uh, you know, I love the I love actually moving air with an amplifier. Of course, um, of course. And, and one of the things that I've always been a little bit kind of concerned about with plugins for, uh, you know, is that the, the way people use them is they record the guitar track with a DI and then they try and reamp it one way or another. Yeah. And you as a guitar player know that that. If, if you're hearing a sound that is inspiring and is responding to the way that you play, you play yes. better. And when you play better, the sound gets better. And when the Absolutely. sound gets better, you play better. So you have that positive spiral that goes on. Yes. So I, I'd always been a little bit kind of, um, what's the word for negative and cynical about the whole concept of doing that. Uh, but by the same token, this, the guys from Softube and UAD, they approach plugins a completely different way. They build them from the component level up. Mm. So they're effectively, they're not just building a virtual version of the algorithms that they've scanned uh, uh, from something. They're actually going down to component level and building a virtual amplifier from scratch. Yeah. Uh, and that made a difference. And, and I'd never done anything quite like this. So I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting thing to do. Um, and then on top of that, and I, that's the first time I'd heard actually that you suggested using the, the vintage amplifiers. Cause that was the other thing for me was getting hold of these vintage amplifiers because um, the, the problem that I consistently was would face is when I was going in the studio with, with guitar-based bands and they wanted to get that kind of gritty ACDC style of sound. Yeah. You know? I mean, I always say to people, well, you'll only get Angus's sound if you've got Angus in the studio with you, you know. Yeah. But, but there is a way of getting that gritty sound. And, and I just happen to know that most of that gritty sound comes from the amplifier overloading the speaker, not yes. overloading the input of the amplifier. Um, so you need speakers with a lower rating yes. so, than the amplifier so you can make them really kind of light up, you know. Yeah. Um, so I knew that we could really get those sounds from these vintage setups and everything. So, so that attracted me as well. Um, and it was, I think, one, it was one of the most pleasurable things that I've done, actually, because the guys from Softube are, are fantastic. Yeah, they I mean, are great guys. Yeah, they just really are. And complete nutters as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, um, but they, you know, they're just trying to put a current take on everything. And they always, I've known those guys for a long time. Obviously, I haven't spoken to them in a few years now, but the stuff that we, I'd worked on, you know, my time with Marshall before that, you know, they've always got these great ideas and they're always just wanting to, you know, better themselves. Um, but seeing the final results with those plugins, I think was the most, uh, was the greatest thing, trying them out, you know, because we spent quite a lot of time doing the presets as well. Didn't we? I came down to your yeah. studio and we, we spent yeah. some time there. I also remember when we were doing the, um, uh, one of which studio did we use when we when I took bought the amps down? Well, we, we did, were... we did the first recordings at core studios. That was it. And um, then the second lot we did at strong room studio. That's right. I think we were, when we were at Strong Room, I, that was one of the sessions we were doing with the Blues Breaker, the, the really old one. And we just had to, you know, we, we sort of only got five or 10 minutes with it at a time before it started crapping out. Well, it's funny. It's funny you should mention that because that, that had just come into my mind as right. the, the, 
what happened with the amp was that you turned it on and it and it's the same thing for a lot of vintage amplifiers you turn them on and they get up to a certain temperature and they sound absolutely oh. amazing yeah for like anything between 10 minutes and an hour and then all of a sudden poof the sound yeah, goes right. and you've got to switch it off let it cool down and heat it all up again it's quite That's amazing right. But I tell you what, those five or 10 minutes I was playing that amp at full tilt, you know, and you were in the control room and I was just in heaven, you know, it was uh, yeah. it was worth paying for, but then it would just go like that. But, oh, okay, yeah. have a quick break. <laughs> <laughs> so um, can you tell us what, you, what you're up to, um, what have you been doing in the last few years, what you're doing at the moment? Um, well, I'm doing a little bit of teaching at Northampton University, um, which, uh, which is interesting. <laughs> To say I the bet. very least. Um, I've got my own mix studio here now. Um, I gave up my studio in London that I shared with uh, a mate of mine, Hayden Bendel. Um, the traveling got a bit much and it started to cost too much money. And, and it's great being having this room next to my house because I can just kind of poodle backwards and forwards. Um, and I managed to get it set up just before the first lockdown. Um, the first album that I mixed in here was Soweto Kinch's latest album. Okay. Um, and that was great. And then I've been doing quite a lot of mixing since then. There's um, uh, a female artist from Australia mixed a couple of tracks for her. Um, I've got this ongoing relationship with a, a, a Northern Irish singer-songwriter who's writing for Synchronizations. And um, we bounce things backwards and forwards between us. And then he records the song, sends it to me, and I, I mix it. And sometimes we sort of have to muck about with different components on it. Um, I just mixed a, a, a really interesting um, jazz album called The Two of Us with a, uh, a fantastic um, jazz trumpet player and drummer. So it's okay. drums and trumpet, which is an interesting uh, right. combination. Uh, mix that. Um, what else? I mean, you know, lots of bits and pieces. Uh, I think the last album that I ended up doing full recording on was um, a, uh, a reggae, punk reggae band called uh, Two Tone Club. Okay. Um, and uh, we did that out in a great little studio in uh, in Belgium, in the Ardennes in Belgium, called Daft Studios. Okay. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful studio, amazing sounding rooms. Nice. Um, set in that, just up by Spa, you know, where yeah. the uh, yeah, Spa Frankenstein. I know it very well. I've been there. Yeah, yeah. it's very nice. Beautiful. Yeah. Great. Great, man. Uh, this has been so much fun, um, Tony. Tony Platt, thank you ever so much. Chris, thank you for asking me. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, mate.